Well, if you've been following along the last couple of weeks, you'll know that we're in the book of Micah. So we're going back to the book of Micah. This time we're in Micah chapter 3. Our sermon title today is Misplaced Confidence. Misplaced Confidence. I, as I was thinking about an illustration to start this morning, I remembered some foolish pictures that were taken of me a number of years ago. So uh, a number of years ago, I was <clears throat> with some friends at the ocean. And it's cool to see the waves crashing on the rocks. And in a moment, I'll, I'll share some pictures with you. And I thought, wouldn't it be neat to get a picture of me standing there confidently as the waves crash on the rocks, shooting up in the air behind me, but not touching me? Wouldn't that be neat? This was years ago. Let me just emphasize that. And uh, before I even met Sarah, thought it would be so neat to have that happen. And so, yeah, we'll put some pictures on the screen here. We were there. I went out on the rocks next to, um, yeah, next to the ocean there. And you can see I've got a, an overconfident look on my face misplaced confident, and that wave wasn't too big of a problem. Oh, my feet are getting a, a little wet here. Well, that's not a big deal. I'm still standing strong, still doing well. But then a big wave hit, one I wasn't expecting, one I was not prepared for, and so that's the moment before, and then trying to brace myself because I realize I'm in big trouble now. The ocean is far more powerful and strong than I am. And then it gets even more terrifying as I am now in the wave. And the wave has knocked me over, threatening to pull me off of the rocks into the water. And of course, you can get all banged up and smashed up against the rocks. Thankfully, I was able to stand back up again, and I went home, let's just say wet and soaking, but a little bit smarter. I had placed too much confidence in myself, too much trust in my own ability to stand firm. And we'll find today, this is what the rulers and the prophets had done. They had placed too much confidence in themselves, confidence in the belief that nothing bad was going to come upon them. So we open up Micah chapter 3, verse 1. And I said, Hear now, O heads of Jacob. I'm reading today from the New King James Version. Hear now. That word hear is a, is a central word in the book of Micah. It's one that we see, actually, it, it kind of started off. Just flip back to Micah chapter 1, verse 2. He started off this covenant lawsuit, this complaint against Israel, Micah 1, verse 2, with the word, hear, listen up. And now, as we enter into uh, a second of three parts, three major parts of the book of Micah, we now again find this word, hear. Hear now. Jesus used that word here a lot, didn't he? He said, blessed are the ones who have ears to hear. Let him who has ears to hear. And here not only meant, let it go in here. Uh, 
in, in your ear, but it meant do it, follow it. And I said, hear now, O heads of Jacob. I was talking with Morgan Graham, or actually we were dialoguing, and he, he brought up an interesting point because the, the last verse of chapter 2, verse 13, it ends with the sentence, with the Lord at their head. Remember, we ended that talking about how the Messiah, the Lord, would lead his people and he would be at their head. But here we have in chapter 3, verse 1, people who do not have the Lord as their head. And so the heads of Jacob are being addressed. And you, rulers of the house of Israel. It's an interesting word, a word that's typically used more like in the book of Judges or Joshua. An old word for ruler that Micah is calling them back to. And he asks them a question. Micah 3 verse 1, last part. He says, is it not for you to know justice? Not just to know about it, but to know it experientially. As leaders, as rulers, aren't you supposed to lead us in the way of justice? We're going to see that word justice more in this chapter. He asked the question because they were not leading them in the way of justice. They were leading in the way of perversity and corruption and whatever I can get for myself, I'm going to get because I can. Verse 2, you who hate good and love evil. The Bible in, in other places calls us to exactly the opposite. We're supposed to love what's good and hate what's evil. But here their hearts have flip-flopped from where they're supposed to be. The things that are good, they don't like it. And the things that are evil, that's just what they love. And notice this uh, cannibalistic metaphor here. You'll see it. Who strip the skin from my people. This gets pretty graphic. And the flesh from their bones. Who also eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from them, break their bones, and chop them up in pieces like meat for the pot, like flesh in the cauldron. This is pretty gross because what the leaders were doing at that time was really gross. The oppressive systems that they had put in place. They didn't care what happened to the poor. If they could, if they could extort the poor laborers, and if they died while building their projects, so be it, as long as my work gets accomplished. And so Isaiah likens them to cannibals. Strips the skin from my people. It's been said, a good leader shears the sheep, not skins the sheep. But these were not good leaders. You know, we may not be in a position where we are extorting people. We may not be oppressing others. We may not be you know, doing these kinds of things. But in a smaller way, it seems like our words are pretty powerful. And our words can cut people. When we gossip about other people, when we backstab and backbite, in a smaller sense, and, and all sins are sins that separate us from God, in that way, we are guilty of similar things. You know, the word sarcasm, you know what sarcasm is? Sarcasm can be a lot of fun when used appropriately, 
But sarcasm actually comes from Greek, and it, it, its origins mean to tear the flesh, to bite the lip and rage and sneer. Uh, the sarks is the Greek word for flesh. Sometimes the way we use our words, our sarcasm, instead of building up, it actually tears down. And I've had playful conversations with people, and I know they're joking, but the way they say it and what they say can still hurt. And I know I've been guilty of that myself. David Baker, who, who authored the Tyndale commentary on the book of Micah, he wrote about the leaders and what they're doing. And his words were just really good. I wanted to read them to you. He said, instead of using their privileged offices to defend the defenseless, the magistrates abused the law so as to circumvent it enabling themselves to live luxuriously off the labors of their abused and defenseless subjects. Since the grinding poverty of the poor was leading them to an early grave, the prophet, in a sustained metaphor, depicts the magistrates responsible for creating these conditions as acting like cannibals. The grotesque figure aims to awaken the conscience of the reprobates. The leaders we're allowing people to live in destitute poverty. We're creating uh, systems that forced people to live that way, dying early, and they didn't care as long as they could please number one. As long as they could keep sustaining themselves. Their confidence was in their position, was in their wealth, was in their status. Their confidence was certainly not in the Lord. But look at verse 4. There's a bit of a shift here. Verse 4, it says, Then, we could also say the word therefore, they will cry to the Lord. Because God had been talking about judgment and punishment. God doesn't like this lack of justice. And so, then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not hear them. He will hide even his face from them at that time because they have been evil in their deeds. Here we see just rewards. The people, the wealthy leaders, had been ignoring the cries of the oppressed, didn't care about it, and now when they themselves find themselves in trouble, God says, I'm not going to do anything. And it's not because God doesn't love the people. As we've said before, it's, it's precisely because he loves them because he loves us, he's not going to enable us to continue on in these kinds of circumstances. Because the cries of these wealthy people, of these rich rulers and powerful people, are not cries of repentance and God, I have, I have sinned, please forgive me. It's the cries of Judas. After he realized he'd betrayed the Son of God, and that was a bad thing. He wasn't sorry for what he'd done, so much as sorry that he was going to experience judgment. This is the sorry, the sorry attitude of somebody who's only sorry they got caught. And so their cries for deliverance don't result in repentance. They result in God giving them back, like we talked about last week, the things that they had doled out to those less fortunate than them. Verse 5, 
Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets. Now we're talking about the prophets. We've gone from the leaders who were more political, social, and now we're talking about the prophets. People who were supposed to speak for God, but notice what it says. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who make my people stray, who chant peace while they chew with their teeth, but who prepare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. In other words, the prophets are just pandering to the desires of the people. Hey, you want something good? You want a good prophecy? Well, what are you going to give me? You're feeding me? Well, let me just tell you, God has good things in store for you, brother. You don't have anything for me? God's going to judge you. They were merely saying whatever the people wanted to hear if they were being paid for it. And if they weren't, then they were turning against the people. That phrase there, while they chew with their teeth, in Hebrew it's actually the word bite. And it's the, it's the word that's used 10 out of 11 times in the Old Testament in the context of snakes. So these false prophets are like serpents, deceptive and deadly. Putting their deadly venom, their deadly lies and mistruths into the lives of people that ends up killing them, and then they devour them for it. Verse 6, therefore, we've seen that word before in this book, therefore, you will have night without vision. And you will have darkness without divination. I'm taking away any gift of prophecy. The sun shall go down on their prophets, and the day shall be dark for them. So the seers shall be ashamed, and the diviners abashed. Indeed, they shall cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. In Leviticus, people who had leprosy and called out unclean were called to cover their lips. And then also in times of mourning, people would cover their lips. But here it's a symbol of shame. And perhaps it relates to the fact that they'd been using their mouth to sow these lies, getting people to trust in them, mistrusting the false words of the prophets. And now they've, whatever gift they had has been taken away from them. And so in shame they cover their mouths, for there is no answer. God. Verse 8. But truly, Micah says, I am full of power by the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit of the Lord, and of justice and might to declare Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. In contrast to these prophets that are just saying whatever people want them to say, if they're paid well, Micah says, no, 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 no. I have power because I have the Spirit of God in my life. And if you have the Holy Spirit living in your life, you have power also. God can empower you to the mission that he's given to you. And Micah's mission was to speak truth to power, to declare things that were hard for people to hear to people who needed to hear it. And we need more of that these days. People who aren't afraid to say what is true to people who are in power. We're seeing more and more people coming out of the woodwork, sharing their story, how people in power have abused them. And it's sad and it's, it's really frustrating the way these powerful, influential people have gotten away with it for so long. 
But Micah says, I'm filled with power and justice and might, and I'm going to declare what God has given me to declare. Back in the 1500s, there was a guy in Scotland named John Knox, and he was a reformer. He was a theologian. And Mary, Queen of Scots, who had a lot of issues um, and was very opposed, John Knox was very opposed to her. She said that she was more afraid of John Knox than all the armies of Scotland. Because this guy was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he was not afraid to speak truth to power, even to the queen. And that was terrifying to her. Micah was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit may use you to say some big things. But you know, the Holy Spirit also helps us stop from saying the wrong things. So we need to have the gift of discernment. But what are the words that Micah has to say? Verse 9, now hear this. That word here again, introducing a smaller unit within this larger literary unit. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, you who abhor justice and pervert equity, who build up Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with iniquity. You know, there were a lot of building projects that happened in Jerusalem. And as with many building projects, the laborers who were forced to do the grunt work didn't get paid like they should. They didn't get the protection like they should. And people lost their lives in the efforts of building up the city, um, whether it be literally or economically. It was built upon the blood and the backs of the poor and the oppressed. And so he groups all, all, all types of leaders, the heads, the priests, the prophets. Uh, we'll get that, to that in just a moment. Well, right there, verse 11. Her heads judge for a bribe. So if you want to get justice, well, you've got to pay the judge to get justice. If you want the court to go in your favor, you got to pay. I mean, can you imagine that if, if we had to do that? And, and I know that this kind of corruption happens today, but this would be horrible. If you were wealthy, you would always get what you wanted. And if you were poor, you couldn't get a decision in your favor because you weren't able to bribe the judge. Her priests teach for pay. Now, the priests were already paid. They were paid through the offerings and through the tithes. Um, God had provided for them. They were already covered. But the priests are refusing to teach unless they're paid above and beyond their salary. You want to learn about God's word? Or are you going to have to pay me something extra? You want to be instructed in, in this way or that way? You're going to have to pay me something. And her prophets divine for money. And here is the, the crux of it all. Look at this. Last part of verse 11. Yet they lean on the Lord, and they say, Isn't the Lord among us? No harm can come to us. These corrupt leaders, whether priests, prophets, or rulers, they were doing all sorts of wrong, which I'm sure they must have known was wrong, but they didn't believe God would do anything. In fact, they thought that God was on their side because they had this false temple theology. They lived there in Jerusalem, and they had the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, as would later be said in Jeremiah. 
And because the temple was there and because that's where God's, uh, you know, the most holy place was and there was the Ark of the Covenant and the Shekinah glory and God's throne here on earth was right there, they said, ain't nothing going to happen to us. We have God with us. And perhaps there was even some of that ethnocentrism where they were a part of this special line of people. And so nothing was going to happen. God wouldn't allow his temple to be destroyed. God would not allow these things. We have God on our side. We have to be very careful when we claim that God is on our side. Even Joshua, when he was confronted by this angelic being, He's about to go conquer Jericho. Joshua, led by God, and he asks this angelic being, hey, are you for us or for our enemies? And what did the angel say, the angelic being, God? What did God say? Neither. Neither. God's for everybody. God wants everyone to be saved and everyone to be blessed. We here in America sometimes we sometimes have this arrogance about us. Let's bring it even closer. We know about the Sabbath as Adventists, and sometimes that makes us feel like we have a leg up. I know about the Sabbath. I give my tithe. I, I'm a member. I'm on the books of the church. Nothing bad's going to happen to me. I'm okay. I, I'm in the kingdom already. I haven't killed anyone. I don't eat bacon. I'm on God's side. God's on my side. I'm a vegan. Misplaced confidence. We place our confidence sometimes in things that we've done, in our works, or in our membership, or in our nationality, or our ethnic background, or any number of things. And we assume that we're okay. Or we abuse God's grace and his mercy. We know God is a God of grace. We know we're not saved by works. And so we don't think it's a big deal to just live in sin. The people were getting away with all sorts of things, getting away with murder. God's not going to do anything. Things will be okay. What did Paul say in Romans 6, verse 1? He said, He said, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how should we that have died from sin live any longer therein? Yes, our God is a gracious and a merciful God, but being saved by grace doesn't mean God wants us to continue living a life of sin. In fact, as we saw in our Sabbath school discussion this morning, sin separates us from God. So if we continue to live in sin, we by our choice continue to voluntarily separate ourselves from God, such that if that continues, we won't even, we'll reach a place where we won't even want God to save us. And so sin is so deadly, and God is trying to do everything he can in our day and in Micah's day to save us. The people had misplaced their confidence saying, hey, no harm's going to come upon us. God is with us. Corrupt priests, corrupt prophets, some pastors today, 
They care more about honorariums than living honorably. One theologian said that they had developed a theology of oppression which sought to uh, rationalize injustice with religious arguments, false oracles, and visions, which served to calm the consciences of the oppressors who could thus enjoy their wealth without scruples. They justified their behavior by twisting the scriptures. And this happens today, far too often. But notice our last verse here. Micah chapter 3, verse 12, Therefore, and in the book of Micah, I think we're seeing anytime the word therefore it, God's about to lower the boom. Therefore, because of you. Now, these are the people who, who said that they were building up Zion, the builders of, of Jerusalem. But because of them, it's about to be destroyed. Zion shall be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall be heaps of ruins and the mountain of the temple like the bare hills the forest. Pretty sobering words. What do we learn from this passage? Well, we learn one thing, a couple of things. There comes a point at which God's mercy turns into God's justice. And those who ignore his mercy long enough will experience his justice. Our confidence should not be in ourselves. Our confidence should not be in the false words of others. We need to know God's word for ourselves. Uh, I'll do my best to relay God's word to you accurately as church people, as people listening to this broadcast online. But just don't take my word for it. You need to have your own connection with God, your own relationship with God. We, we talked two weeks ago about how these words were quoted about 100 years later because Micah's words actually did make an impact. He preached for maybe 15 years before things started to make a difference, but a king named Hezekiah heard his words and said, we've got to do something. We've got to make a change here. And so Hezekiah led out in a work of reformation and idol smashing and getting people back to God, worshiping God, like had never happened before. And his actions saved, although temporarily, saved the nation from ruin. But those after him didn't sustain it, and not everybody embraced it, and so it was only able to delay the onset of destruction, about 100 years. And in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar came in with his armies and destroyed Jerusalem, even knocking down that beautiful, sacred temple. God doesn't care about geography. God wants to be in our hearts. God wants to live in our hearts. And he doesn't want us to think we are with him when we're really not. And so sometimes he has to send us messages that, that get us to reevaluate ourselves and make sure that we're not living in a false sense of security, misplacing our confidence. And he sends us messages like this one from Micah. You know, about 600 years after Jerusalem was destroyed, Jesus was speaking to a multitude on a hillside. Sermon on the Mount. And later, 
in his ministry, he would talk about the destruction of the temple again, the rebuilt temple. But as he concluded his words that day in that powerful sermon, Jesus looked forward to an even greater day of judgment, of reckoning. A day in which everybody would either be lost or saved in that moment because he was talking about his return to the world. When time freezes as it were and whether you're saved or whether you're lost, you're, you're set because your choices have already been made. And he said in, the, in Matthew chapter 7, Many will come to me in that day saying, Lord, Lord, haven't we done all these things in your name? Lord, I'm saved, right? And Jesus said those heartbreaking words, I never knew you. People who had trusted in their behavior and their actions, and trusted in the fact that they were nominally Christian, trusted in the fact that they had their membership somewhere in a church, Trusted in the fact that they didn't do a whole bunch of really bad things, therefore they must be a good person. And and on the balance they thought, I'm going to heaven. But Jesus said, no, no, no. You're workers of lawlessness, of iniquity, of sinfulness. I never really knew you. Can we have assurance of our salvation? Absolutely. But we need to make sure that we have honestly, with our whole heart, sincerely, given our life to God. That we've led Him into our life, not only as Savior, but as Lord. So that our our confidence can truly be in the Lord, not in some version of the Lord that we don't truly know. So what's your confidence in? Have you rested your life in God? Are you open to hear what God wants to say? Even the things that mean you need to change? The prophets in Micah's day, the people didn't want to hear the bad stuff. They only wanted to hear good things. Sometimes we call things like that... um, where, where you're just only repeating and hearing the things uh, that you want to hear. Um, the term is, is escaping me right now. Um, confirmation bias. Where you only listen to the things that confirm what you already believe. We can't be like that in Christianity. We need to, to listen to God's word, the things that make us feel good and the things that Cut us to the heart and say, my child, it's time for some change. Jerusalem didn't have to be destroyed, but it was. But there's a new Jerusalem that God is actively preparing for you and for me. And we have an opportunity today, each day, to put our confidence truly in God, not in ourselves, not in our merits, but honestly giving our life to Jesus, not only as Savior, but as Lord. I want that to be the case for my life. How about you? When he comes back, I don't want him to say, I don't know you. I want him to say, I'm so excited to see you. I've been waiting for this moment for a long time. Let's bow our heads. Dear Father,
it's not all um, rainbows and unicorns, symbolically. Sometimes we need to hear words that call us to repentance, call us to uh, an honest self-inventory, words that call us to examine our lives uh, with the light of your word shining into our hearts. Father, I'm so thankful that we can't earn our salvation because none of us could. Jesus, thank you for what you did for us on the cross. And today again, those in the hearing of this voice, just say together, I accept your gift, Lord. I not only want you to save me from my, my sins and from the consequences of my sin, I want you to change me so that I don't even want to sin, so that I want to be more like you. And I'll let you control and guide and lead in my life. We pray that this will be the case today and every day, and that someday when you come back, we'll see you as friend and nothing else. In Jesus' name, amen. Happy Sabbath. Thank you.